ahead and take your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land, green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm one of your hosts, Hal Bryan, EAA's Managing Editor for Print and Digital Content and Publications, and over across the table... Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. And uh, Tom, we are joined uh, not just by a very special guest, but uh, uh, a guest who was foolish enough to have done the show early on and come back. Uh, one of our first uh, returning guests, Dr. Jennifer Levasseur, a museum creator at uh, the National Air and Space Museum of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. It's it's great to have you back. It was it was good of you to remind us that you'd uh, you'd you'd been on this uh, particular circus train before. <laughs> yeah, just not in person this time. We're a little quite distant, but uh, right. I would love to be back there. Obviously, I'd, I'd love to be a three peter if I can make it there in person sometime. Wow! And uh, you know, we, we keep talking with Jack Pelton, who's been a uh, obviously a repeat guest. Uh, that we owe him his uh, five episode blazer. So <laughs> we can't uh, we can't very well let you get ahead of him there. But but who knows? We'll see what happens. Understood. Well, it's uh, it's certainly glad to uh, glad to have you here and. Uh, um, just to talk a little bit about what's uh, what's going on at the uh, National Air and Space Museum, our, our national treasure out there in D.C. But uh, you know, before we get to that, um, for those who uh, who haven't heard uh, your your first appearance on the show, give us just a little bit of your your background. How how did you start out and and end up uh, in the position where you are today? Uh, well, long story, because I've been at the Smithsonian now for 20 years, uh, 20 and a half years, it's hard to believe, but uh, COVID makes some of that seem a lot shorter. But um, yeah, I um, came, to, came to the Smithsonian as a graduate student just after finishing my master's degree here at George Washington University and started in the space history department in the summer of 2002 and really worked my way up from just being just, it was a, I wouldn't say just, it was a fantastic position as a museum technician, which is um, really a sort of jack of all trades in a, in a sense uh, in the Smithsonian um world. And so you get tasked with doing all kinds of things. I started out in our loan program because, of course, we, um, as a space history department, there's a lot of demand on our artifacts. There's people, obviously, all over the world interested in showing people space history through artifacts. And so started off in that world and then continued on, started my PhD in 2005, um, just to move myself, my career in a new direction, um, really advancing things. Um, I wanted to be a museum curator, and that was really the the purpose of me uh, working and, and doing the degree at the same time. And so I uh, finished that, actually just celebrated yesterday. It's been eight years since I graduated with my PhD. Um, and so really just um, done all kinds of different work. Uh, I think having a background in museum studies really uh, gave me an appreciation for working across all the different museum departments that exist uh, for us. And so I worked quite a bit early in my career with our exhibitions department, our collections department, and advancement and PR. And so just, you know, the list was endless. And I was so I was working a lot on digital things. And so the curatorial uh, work and the his becoming a historian formally really just kind of tied all those pieces together for me. And then um, a few years ago, uh, I um, 
took the uh, took on the job of being our space shuttle and international space station curator, which means I am the one of very few curators in this world who can say I am a curator of a space shuttle, which is very exciting, always very exciting to to talk about. But you know, part of my career is most of my career has been in thinking about how do we talk about our history, our space history with the public. And so that's through lots of different ways, like presenting exhibitions. And so I've done a few of those, um, one on spacewalking, and then um, obviously mostly focused on human spaceflight. And so, um, and then also working to get our collections online even, even more than they already are. So that's been a focus of mine almost my entire career. And we'll continue to push forward on exactly those same things. Um, not much in the sense our goals haven't changed too dramatically in the last 20 years. I've been able to continue to push forward on a number of initiatives that have started a long time ago and have just expanded in new ways in the last few years. And um, yeah, it's an exciting time for the museum, especially. So I'm happy to talk about what we're up to today. Well, it's uh, quite a career so far. <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> that's amazing, and and, and also to, to to spend all you know that amount of time at one institution is is, uh, yeah. is pretty incredible. Um, one of the things you mentioned is is how you have an academic background in this, obviously, and that probably mm-hmm. gave you exposure to I'm, I'm sure the theory of curation and mm-hmm. other museums and things like that. So having that background, what do you think is similar but also different about an air museum? compared to uh, other types of museums? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think Hal will probably have some sense of where I'm going to go with this, which is we actually have a built-in, and and it's been on hiatus for a few years now, but built into the National Air and Space Museum when I arrived was an effort called Mutual Concerns, which is a conference that was held uh, for a long time. It was held annually, then biannually. And like I said, it's now on hiatus. But it was an opportunity for air and space museums from around the world, really, to gather together and talk about these these distinctions that make us significantly different than other museums. And um, it was always a really great opportunity for me to see where other places do things differently than what we do, um, but also where we can learn from each other and um, in terms of our educational programs and the way we do other kinds of outreach and research and things like that. And so, um, you know, I always put it under the umbrella of this phrase mutual concerns, which is we don't really fit into a lot of traditional museum categories because we have artifacts that defy the traditional classification or traditional treatments that you might see at traditional museums, even history museums. And so if you look even within the Smithsonian, we have divisions between our science museums, our history museums, and our art museums. And those are kind of those buckets that you can typically think of museums and science centers falling in. And so, you know, we kind of stand apart and we actually cross a lot of borders because we have science collections, we have history collections, and we have art collections within just our single unit. And so, you know, we've reached across and, and met with and dealt with and, you know, partnered with all of these air and space museums across the world. And we continue to do that because of that shared experience, which is so unique to us. And also we share, I think, a, a lot of messaging that, that really goes together as well. And so 
the inspirational nature of what, you know, we, we treat it in the museum as air and space, um, aviation and space technology have changed the world. That's our sort of overarching guiding principle in the way we talk about this history. And I think you could say that about any other air and space museum is that, you know, we know that our visitors feel changed by what happens in terms of aviation and space flight. And so we can obviously draw on that to teach them about how that actually happens. And so um, it's just a, such a unique niche kind of thing, but really it's not a niche. It's just very pervasive. And that's one of the things that we're trying to get people to think more about is really how those technologies have reshaped the world. And so we just, you know, it's been a great opportunity uh, to really draw on the experiences seen elsewhere, especially I know, and how would probably see that say this too, is that when you get the international aspect into this storytelling into the museum world, you kind of see what it's like when you're talking to folks from Poland or the UK or France or somewhere else, uh, Australia, they, we've all got these museums. I was just in England and I was near the Spitfire factory. And, you know, you realize that these things are just everywhere. They're part, uh, especially of the lives that, you know, the lives of folks um, all over Europe, mostly because of World War II. There's this huge impact of those technologies, a lingering impact, but also one that has a real physical footprint in air, you know, on airfields and things like that. So um, it's just such a, you know, it's one of these, like, like I said, it's a, it feels like a niche topic, but it's not, it's really, it's really out there. And so it's great to be able to kind of share this space in a sense um, with other museums and get a chance to talk about it. Yeah, it's a really good way of putting it. And, and you, yeah, you bring up that the, the, the crossover with a lot of other genres of museums. It's always a, yeah. a little... It's funny. It's almost a little jarring sometimes when you go to like a um, just a straight, you know, either a, a military museum or a history museum and there's an airplane there. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. In fact, there's one, there's a Stearman that's at the African-American History and Culture Museum here, which is one of our uh, newest museums at the Smithsonian. And I think it is kind of like a, a little bit of a like eye opener to think that this this object, this aviation piece of aviation history fits into that story. But that's one of the things that we, we partner so frequently, even with folks at Natural History, because of things like the work that we do um, with our department that deals exclusively with science um, and, and geology. Um, we have a bunch of planetary scientists uh, on our staff. And so the overlap with things like meteorites and other types of geological evidence, it's really important to their work. And so we can cross over in so many different ways and um, and with so many different institutions. I've had some great conversations with people who work at museums that deal with things like locomotives um, because of the size of the artifacts being so enormous and challenging mm. to deal with. And obviously just the size of our artifacts you know, things like the space shuttle or the SR-71 or the um, Concorde, those things take an incredible amount of effort to manage. Now, when they're in place, maybe not so much, but getting them into place is, is a real struggle. And so that's where that, that shared learning is definitely of real value to all of us. That's really uh, an interesting way to put it. You know, you mentioned the locomotive museums or train museums in general, and just thinking not only about the size of the artifacts, but but just the actual difficulty of moving them and, and you know, having to lay track and things like that. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, 
if you hadn't mentioned that, I would have I would have sort of been all smug and said, well, you know, nobody's got the challenges of uh, of a big aviation museum and moving big <laughs> stuff around. And then, yeah, somewhere uh, and probably uh, probably Tom is uh, certainly a train fan, uh, and I'm a bit of a closeted train fan. But uh, certainly, they would have corrected me. Said, well, wait a minute, have you ever seen you know have you ever seen an old uh, steam powered big boy or something like that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I I always I always mention that, and then I always it, it makes me reflect back on, you know, why I am where I am. And in a sense, it has, it was getting into museum work is not like a natural thing. I come from, you know, a smallish suburb of Toledo, Ohio, and there's nothing about that area specifically that would have led me to an air and space museum. There's no, um, you know, nothing immediate in a sense that, you know, I was around as a kid that would lead me to that. However, there was a location that was really important to my understanding of history, and that was the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn. My grandparents had a house, um, and my mom grew up just a few miles from there. And so if I wasn't there on a class trip, I was there at the holidays with my grandfather, or I was there for some other reason. And it was always where I wanted to go. And um, I have this very vivid memory of um, the holidays. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what year it was. It's around 1990. But I did not want to go on the Christmas vacation to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with my family because a hurricane had just gone through. And I was not interested in being in a place where there was nothing to do. And so I said, can I just stay with grandma and grandpa? Well, not knowing what to do with a you know 13-year-old, my grandmother took me to the Henry Ford Museum for the day. And that was a day they were bringing a locomotive into the museum. Oh, and wow. it was... Wow unbelievable like it was in the newspaper and you know this was a really big deal and so that kind of and what's really crazy is I've now gone back and visited the museum a number of times even with my own kids and I've gone like that's the that's the steam engine I saw brought into this museum when I was a kid and it really does have this it kind of imprints itself that and that's one of the things that's always so valuable about taking people to places where there is an active you know, amount of work going on in terms of either conservation or display, but being able to see that work um, is just like mind blowing that, you know, that piece of something that was a part of history long, long, long ago to me was really present. It was really still like it was still there. And that's what makes, you know, going and taking people on tours and talking about the space shuttle or the SR-71, even though they're not used anymore you know, you can make that experience come alive in many ways. So speaking of active work, um, mm-hmm. the uh, so actually I was just in D.C. Uh, last week as we're recording this, and uh, I was walking across the mall from one meeting to another, and uh, I noticed, I, I looked to my left, and I noticed that uh, the um, Air and Space Museum on the mall, mm. since I last saw it, its roof had uh, had sprouted a couple of new uh, <laughs> uh, appendages. Can you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, so the story begins um, almost a decade ago, or at least a decade ago at this point, when um, we had an earthquake here in Washington, D.C., a very unexpected experience, which I was actually in my office for. Uh, I passed it off as probably being the IMAX theater rumbling below me um, initially, but it continued for a while, and a space shuttle launch even on an IMAX screen isn't quite that disturbing. Um, And so... Following that, a number of uh, federal government 
government buildings needed to be inspected, and and we were not um, immune to that. In fact, we had had some during it. The building itself had had some stone from the outside fall off, and it continued to kind of be very concerning in terms of the exterior stone. And we did a couple other things in the course of a couple of years around that time where we started to realize that even though it was completed in 1976, which isn't all that long ago, um, the building was really suffering from a number of issues. In fact, we weren't we weren't really helping the issue, which is we were putting really, really large objects in a building that apparently wasn't really built to support those objects. You'd think that they would have thought about that in advance, but um, rolling a 14,000-pound space shuttle main engine across the floor of the building <laughs> was not what the building was meant to do, which is really disappointing, <laughs> that they couldn't <laughs> foresee that that would be a problem. Um, and so all of this kind of really contributed us to, as, as a unit, looking at the building, the Smithsonian getting involved with its engineers and saying, you know, what is the situation here and what do we need to do as the most visited museum at the time in the world, but now certainly most visited museum in the United States. Um, we have so much foot traffic through this place. We need to find a solution to all of this. And the solution became what we call revitalization, which is really an overhaul of the complete structure of the building. And so we are at just about the halfway point. I can't really say we're halfway because not half of the exhibits have reopened. Um, the central core of the building where you would normally enter is still in, in progress. But um, we've gone through this since that time of basically not only working on the building itself, so stripping the building down to the steel beams and kind of rebuilding all of the infrastructure. Um, we had had plumbing problems and, you know, no building is immune from this. And so we just had an opportunity in a window where this was going to be possible with our federal funding and um, going outside and fundraising. And so we needed to do this building overhaul. And then we also obviously had an opportunity as curators to rethink the job that we do in terms of our exhibitions. And so we sat down as a group of curators. Uh, we were assigned to really just map out the museum. What exhibition do we want to go where? What is its theme going to be? What it, who's going to be working on this? How is this going to be worked on? The you know larger teams got involved in thinking through the process, the logistics, and then um, we needed to obviously engage in you know partnerships to get this work done. And so, working with our fundraisers and things like that, because while you might visit the museum and be able to enter for free <clears throat> as a taxpayer, you know, it's free to you to walk in the door. It's free to everyone to walk in the door. What takes place on the inside is not free. We spend a lot of time reaching out to individuals and organizations to fundraise for the exhibitions that we do on the inside. And so the building is federally supported, but the exhibitions are all privately supported. And so it's a really, really long process of obviously development. Um, and so, like I said, we're about halfway through. Um, we've opened the first eight or nine exhibits um, with a lot of our really important major narratives represented. So we have Destination Moon to tell the Apollo narrative. We have the Wright Brothers and the Invention of the Aerial Age, which is um, sort of a refreshed version of what had been on the floor since 2003. Um, that is back, so you can come back and see the Wright Brothers aircraft and bicycle and all the great stuff that we have on display in that gallery. And then we have some new, new topics really to kind of 
refresh the take that we have on some other subject areas. And so one thing we'd been talking about previously had been early flight. There was a gallery as you entered the building, you could go and look at um, older aircraft and really explore the origins of developing um, the business of aviation. Now we have that in a nice new fresh gallery um, that just engages with a lot of great visual material and aircraft and other artifacts that flesh out that story. And so um, the next set of exhibitions will kind of roll out through the next few years. We've got um, our Pioneers of Flight exhibition will come back and our milestones of our Boeing milestones of Flight Hall will come back as well. And so those are the next ones in the queue. Um, That'll kind of reopen that central corridor in the building that everyone's used to entering through. Um, And then we'll go through rolling out a number of other exhibits. including one called At Home in Space, which is what I work on, which is about the Space Shuttle International Space Station and Artemis era. So um, get to talk a little bit about what's happening today, although it won't open until 2025. So it's always challenging as a museum curator to go, okay, I have to think about what this will look like in the past tense two to three years from now. Um, You have to kind of displace yourself a little bit, and it's really awkward to do, but um, it's an, it's obviously a very exciting time for us. We've had a very good response to the first set of exhibitions that opened. And um, it literally, it just, frankly, it's just so refreshing to walk into a really beautiful space. Um, we've done away with carpeting entirely. Um, it's a nice, beautiful flooring that we've got. And we use all of the space very, very wisely. So when you're walking around, you have to look at the floors. You have to look at the ceiling. You have to look in different places because we've tried to really use the space, the, the space as, well, as best we can to convey some of the messages. So um, it's it's really on the outside. It doesn't look so pretty right now. Um, well, one end of the building looks really pretty. The other, <laughs> the other end, as you noted, has some extra appendages on it until <laughs> we wrap up the, um, the envelope project, which really will then seal the building off from the elements and we can get rid of all of that um, yucky outside stuff. <laughs> yucky outside stuff. Mm-hmm. That being the technical yeah. term, no doubt. Yes. Um, so you mentioned 2025 for the, uh, the stuff around Artemis and, and uh, that was the Life in Space exhibit, correct? At Home in Space. At Home yeah, in Space, excuse me, at Home yeah, in Space. No, no. Um, so is that the, uh, you know, I know that, that work um, in a museum, any museum is is never finished. It just keeps going mm-hmm. and going and going. But is that, uh, are we saying that 2025 is when this sort of, this whole current crop of renovations and things will be a complete, officially complete or are you do you expect to have most of the major galleries open before then and that's just that particular exhibit that wouldn't be there yeah. until 2025? Uh, things change from time to time and so um we basically have i mean w- w- if you can imagine yourself um I always describe the building and the way we've approached this as a, as a loaf of bread. And so if you start at the West end of the building, which is the end nearest to the Hirshhorn museum, um, we've kind of worked our way across the building for very strategic reasons. One of which is that our loading area into the building is the far Western door of the building. And so everything has to come in through those doors. Every artifact, large artifact especially, has to come in through those doors. So it's kind of a rolling process. We we needed to open one half of the building to, you know, we needed the time to, you know, be closed 
um, to get everything finished. And now what we can do is kind of roll things out. So I believe there's going to be a bit of a rolling process to everything else that happens from here on out, which means um, at home in space, which is in what we call zone seven, that is the far eastern wall of the building um, closest to um, the National Museum of American Indian, that will open last. And then the other addition that we're just getting ready, and it's already been publicly announced, but the other change, significant change that will come to the building is a full addition onto the east end to be called the Bezos Learning Center. That replaces the um, glass atrium style McDonald's restaurant that had been in the building previously. And so that is all very close to being finally torn down. And then um, a new wing to the building will be added on, which will include an educational center, um, some classroom facilities, which we've never had in the downtown building. We've never had a really great education space. Um, it'll include a new um, restaurant for us, probably some kind of, um, I don't want to say amphitheater, that's not really the right term, but somehow it's still the term I keep using, but it'll have a place where we can hold lectures outside of the IMAX theater as well. So a really sort of broad, sc broadly scoped project um, that we're getting input on now from um, con contributions uh, from architect for architecture firms, students, um, really to kind of reimagine sort of how the space will look. So, um, and included in that is, I believe, um, a, a kind of revitalization of another project, which we've done too, which is a public observatory. And so we'll have better facilities to be able to have our, uh, have our local community um, come in and do nighttime observing, but also hold observing uh, instruction during the day as well, where people can literally come in and look at what's observable in the daytime sky through a telescope. Wow, that sound that that really does sound like a a, a a big revamp in the kind of resource <laughs> that the museum will be. Oh, yeah, yes. especially to the community. Yeah, uh, that's that's really awesome. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, one of the things that we've definitely worked hard on in the time that I've been at the museum is, you know, encouraging, uh, and the, the public observatory project has always been sort of my prime example of this, which is, you know, it seems like a, a, a simple um, thing to do, but we, you know, our staff had realized that one of the problems in presenting information, and you all know how exciting it is for the public right now in terms of new discoveries being made from the James Webb Space Telescope, but, you know, connecting between your daily experience and that of something that is, you know, very far away from the earth taking photographs with these um, and gathering data with these high-powered computers and, and mirrors and things. It's really hard to understand, but the way we start that process of understanding is just putting your eye in front of or behind a telescope for you to be able to look at something and say, wow, that's out there. Um, an experience that really can change your point of view on all the other things that can be done in terms of observing um, and doing science research and things like that. So um, we've really made a strong partnership with the DC area public schools um, and we had to do all kinds of you know class trips and things like that so that they can come out and really feel like a participant rather than just an observer. 
Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned the telescope, and I think you know maybe some people would would scoff at that and say, well, you know, there's so much light pollution in D.C. What can you really see? But <laughs> yeah, but you know, I've done a little bit of backyard, um, uh, you know, uh, um, stargazing with, uh, with you know with a small telescope, and I mean, mm-hmm. you could see things like the rings of Saturn and the sure. moons of Jupiter. You know, there's there's Absolutely. a lot of cool things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I had the opportunity to go to the U.S. Naval Observatory here in D.C. a long time ago, and with a very, very strong, tele- the, t- the beautiful telescope they have up there, was able to see the rings of Saturn. And I have to say, other than the moon, looking at the moon through a telescope and the sun, because we have the right tools for that at work, um, I got to see that. And I was literally, it's like life-changing to be able to really see with your own eyes the things that you normally just see on your computer screen or on television um, and to know that they're out there with your own, you know, it's just, it's a very different experience, which circles back to my interest in how we visualize things, which is part of my research effort. But I'm really trying to, you know, I'm, I'm always very interested in making, in, in, in making a connection between our ability to see things and, and show them with cameras, um, and our understanding of them and the memories that we carry of all of these experiences. I know, you know, if you're old enough, you remember watching certain events on television. I know my mom would always tell me about having watched, um, you know, the, all of the stuff surrounding JFK's assassination and all of that on television and then having my own experience as a kid. And so, you know, you know, watching in particular, watching space shuttle challenger, you know, there's just this, there is this power in connection between visuals and memory. That's really important for us to kind of contribute to. You want to make that lasting impression, a good lasting impression, hopefully. Right. Well, I want to switch gears in just a second and and uh, have you talk a little bit about what it's like, what it means to curate a space shuttle mm-hmm. and how incredibly cool that is uh, and must be. Um, but before I do that, just a, maybe a, maybe an easy question, maybe a really, really hard question. But when I think about uh, the Air and Space Museum and Udvar Hazy and that whole – the totality of that collection, I mean, that's where – uh, that's where the artifacts are, the Spirit of St. Louis and the Red Flyer and Glamorous Glennis and Spaceship One and all of these things. Um, you know, there, there, isn't, there isn't one hero artifact in, that, in your collection. You, you've got scores of them, hundreds of them, maybe thousands yeah. of them. But is there um, – I, I think the original, the original way I was going to phrase this question is say, what's the easiest thing for somebody to miss? And I know it's a bit different now with <laughs> renovations and things like that yeah. going on, but um, – Thinking about it in terms of either, you know, when the museum was most recently sort of fully opened or as you envision it down the road, what's an artifact that people could go through and would be absolutely amazed by, but if somebody doesn't point it out, they might overlook it? So it's great that you say that because we just started a program um, this this last actually this month is our first uh, attempt at making this um, this come this kind of idea come to life and to really you know bring it out and and we're using uh, Instagram Reels to try and kind of really touch on some of those stories and my favorite one was one of the first two and actually I'm I. I love both of the ones that we did, um, but we had our uh, curator emeritus Peter Jacob come in and talk about um, the Wright brothers. Of course, he's the, one of the one of what he's most known for is his curation of the Wright Flyer and and his re- writing and research on the Wright brothers and. So he talks about the famous photograph of the very first flight and about the camera that was used and that experience. And so, 
it, it was it's somewhat obvious, but the one that I I always touch on when I tell the story when I go and do tours is one that is very relevant today, but people may not realize at the end of our destination moon exhibit is a pair of of uh, astronaut boots, and these are the boots that Gene Cernan was wearing as the last person to leave the moon. And so, you know, I always like to think of that, the toe of that boot, and I'm assuming it's probably the right boot, but could be the left, you know, it's, but one of the toes of those boots was the last thing to come back to have touched the surface of the moon. You know, you can just picture it. It's so like, it it is so, you know, we've all like, you know, we step onto things and off things every day. And so, you know, you know how your feet move and you can put yourself literally in the shoes, in your imagination and think about what that is like and what that means. And so it really connects our past to our present in a really interesting way, because um, presumably not too long from now, we're going to have someone step back on the moon. And so to me, I'm waiting to, you know, I'm waiting for the companion piece to this story, which is this, it, you know, it took 50 some years to get these boots back to the moon. (laughs) Um, You know, and, and it just, it's such a nice, there's such a nice sort of elegance to that story and sort of a really, you know, and that's part of what we work even harder at today is to find the ways that we can make stories relatable to people. And, um, and finding stories that connect with people in really meaningful ways. And it's not just the people that we've always connected with, which is easy to do, which are the people like us who are interested in this subject, who have an innate innate interest in learning more about aviation and space technology. But we want to connect to just everybody. And so finding, you know, artifacts and stories that we can um, connect to, say, a young girl with Pakistani background or... um, a, a teenager who is from Puerto Rico or where, you know, we want everyone to come into the museum and feel connected to the story. And we find the stories that then make that possible. And so while they may not immediately connect with Gene Cernan's boots, we can tell that story in a way that makes it relatable, that gives you a sense of what he might've been feeling or, you know, experiencing in that moment. Um, and there are lots of stories like that where, um, we've got a, a sewing machine that was used to sew the spacesuits. Um, and so that can connect people through, you know, arts and crafts and people who legitimately like sewing their own clothes or whatever it might be. So we're really searching far and wide for where our um, collection can mean something that maybe we didn't, we wouldn't normally have thought it could mean to somebody and for those unexpected stories. It's really fun to look for those and to find them. I'm really excited. We're going to share some of those kinds of stories. One of the, one of the best ones I have is um, we will be um, bringing to display one of the double tree cookies that was baked on the international space station. Um, if you haven't stayed at a double tree hotel, most people know that the double tree has great cookies. <laughs> so <laughs> having, having that, like that really to me is a like great all encompassing object, but it has a space context and it makes it really, really fascinating for that reason. So it's just sort of a preview of what, how we're going to do that same thing in another place. Well, I think that, yeah, you're, you're, you're touching on, on the, the mark of any good museum, which is that it's the stories behind the artifacts that are really the yes and and uh you know we we do everything we can for uh you know to 
to guide people around the museum, um, mm-hmm. you know, while they're while they're there. But I, I love giving tours at our museum and, yeah. uh, and you know, like bringing that. the stories out. Yeah, I think we. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's an un, you know, it's and it's um, it's something that I think I you know I've always been personally interested in as being more present in the physical space. It's been it's sad that. You know, one, because we, for the renovation, all of our research staff, including myself, were moved to offsite um, uh, office, an offsite office building. We're just a few blocks away, but, um, you know, then COVID hit. And so it really has, over the last four years, incredibly decreased our ability to just go and be a participant in the experience. Um, I love any opportunity right now I have to go into the building whether it be for work, you know, like actually going to a meeting or if it's just giving another kind of a tour, just to be in the space with people and see their reactions to the things that we've done. Um, I inevitably end up with random people joining the tours I give. <laughs> um, yeah. So when as you talk about things, they recognize that you're, you know, somebody who knows what's going on here and they want to listen in. And that, you know, while it can be a little awkward at times, it's also I- encouraging in a sense that, you know, people really do care about this subject and they're interested. And I, I hope we're, I just hope we're hitting the right notes. I think we are, but, um, you know, we're just a few months into this. So we'll have to see how things go in the coming months and years. Yeah, uh, no, definitely. I, I just, um, yeah, I, I was at um, Johnson Space Center uh, a couple of years ago, and I was with a, a, a group of uh, people I work with. And we were at at the Saturn V and, t- and I was just talking about something to do with like the F1 engines or something like that. And I mm-hmm. look down and an entire crowd is, is uh, formed. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. It's natural, but it does give you that like feeling of, um, you know, this is like, I always feel this is what I should be doing. Um, this is really the, the manifestation of all of the things that I say that I care about. And it really is a, sort of that it's a bit of a, a good reality check. It feels like, Oh wow. It does. You know, there is some power and value to the storytelling that we do and that people really become inspired by it. Um, we did a campaign video for this process we've been going through and narrated by Harrison Ford, which just makes it even more exciting for those of us who are fascinated by him and his career. Um, and it, it's kind of follows that line of, you know, the museum as a potentially inspiring place for someone. And so it follows this sort of hypothetical girl who comes to the museum and meets and does a tour and then is inspired by that and gets sort of active in, you know, doing this. And then she becomes, and by the end of the story, becomes the first person to walk on Mars. And mm-hmm. it's just a like, you know, is potentially um, fanciful as that may still seem, you know, we know that that's part of what we're here for um, is to tell those stories and to inspire people. And that's, you know, the Smithsonian itself has been around for that for 175 years now, and it's great to be part of it. That's terrific. Uh, well, Jennifer, we're actually, uh, we're, we're getting a bit close to the end of the episode, as hard as that is to believe. But uh, <laughs> but before we, we do wrap it up, um, is there a singular uh, moment and this this may be very unfair uh, that stands out to you around uh, being a curator of the shuttle in particular. How what a remarkable and and literally awesome responsibility that is. Uh, was there a moment when it first arrived, or a particularly powerful uh, visitor or experience you've had uh, in and around uh, the shuttle? 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been around for 20 years. And so I was here when Discovery arrived, even though, and I was involved in the events that um, that were transpired, the Welcome Discovery events when it arrived here and got to be on site and interviewed about its arrival. And so um, those were all obviously very special, but I felt disconnected because I wasn't the space shuttle curator at the time. Um, that has only been true for the last three years. Um, one of the things that's it, it would be hard for anybody to really know about the space shuttle or any of the space shuttles is that just because, and this is true of aircraft as well, uh, just because they're static and sitting on the floor of a museum or hanging from the hanging from a ceiling does not mean they don't need to be taken care of, and especially with um, used aircraft and spacecraft, there are still fluids inside them that just can't be drained out. There's no way to get all of it out. And so one of the things that's true about Discovery is that it has um, been leaking hydraulic fluid in its uh, aft engine compartment, um, basically for all the time that we've had it. Um, and that's always the case. It's I always talk about it like a car, you know, you get leaks and stuff, it just happens and you have to take care of it and manage it. Uh, when we did an inspection in January of this year, right at the end of January, it was the first time I entered Discovery as its curator. And I went in first and I stood up in just inside the hatch. We always go, if we're going to go in the crew compartment, we go in through the hatch just like they would have. And I, I kind of crawled, literally, we have to crawl inside. And I stood up and looked around the mid deck and realized that this is my responsibility, um, that making sure people know about this, they understand it, they can appreciate it, they're interested in it, um, that, you know, I've got connections now because of it to dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of individuals who had a relationship with that vehicle before me um, is really, really awesome. I mean, there's no other way to put it. And it's awesome in all the ways you can think of it being awesome. You know, you kind of just have to take a, a deep breath and and just sit with it for a bit. And I don't know that it ever will fully sink in that it's my responsibility to make sure that the most historic space shuttle vehicle is at least for now, mine to be responsible for. And so I take that responsibility pretty seriously. Um, I got some photographs taken by our staff photographers. I did a blog post on this uh, about being Discovery's curator um, earlier last year. And, you know, I sat in the airlock looking out into the payload bay and it just kind of all really like the whole experience the day we did this was really just sort of a, a bit of a um, a dream for me because it really brought me full circle from the days of watching space shuttle launches as a kid. Um, and it's just still, anytime I talk about it, it's surreal to be able to see that I'm, I am the person who did that. Like I used to do that when I was a kid, sit on the you know couch or on the floor of my classroom and watch space shuttles go up into space and then I saw it arrive at the museum, and now it's my job to make sure that it's taken care of. And I always talk about my job and our job as the Smithsonian in the long term. So what work we're doing today isn't really even meant in a sense. It's not meant for you and me. It's meant for 
um, our great, 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 great grandchildren. It's meant to be around for them as, you know, the evidence of our activity in space. So um, it's, it's a lot, <laughs> you know, to like go, wow, that's my job. But I, um, I do take it very seriously. And it just is such a privilege um, to have it, to have this job and to know that, um, you know, there's just so much, so much love that exists for the space shuttles. I have to say, it's one of the things I've come to appreciate in the last handful of years um, is, you know, there's a great deal of love and affection for these shuttles by the people who, from the people who worked on them. Um, and it's just anytime I get a chance to meet one of them or meet an astronaut who flew on Discovery in particular, it's just such, it's, it's oh, there's always something new that I learn almost every time I meet and talk with one of them um, about, you know, its condition, it's some certain, you know, bit or piece of it that's different from the other shuttles or some story about using it and how, you know, this one made funny noises or, you know, like just it has character and to understand its character as sort of its own sort of individual <laughs> self, um, if you want to kind of personify the shuttle. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's just always, it's always, I'm always putting these little things in my back pocket that I can pull out someday and tell other people. So, um, well, yeah. it, it's certainly heartening to know, uh, Jennifer, <laughs> that, uh, that all of the artifacts there are in such, uh, in such good hands. And, uh, and there's something very almost profoundly comforting about that long view that yeah. the Smithsonian has always taken. You know, you know, I, you know, I have a, another a, a good friend who works there and I've gotten that same, that same sense from her over the years yeah. as well. Um, so yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, the the country is uh, is is grateful, and I and as a country, we're lucky to have a resource like that. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So with that, uh, we are though unfortunately getting right up against the clock. So uh, so Jennifer, thanks so much for taking some time to join us today. We really appreciate having you uh, on the show and having you back. Thank you so much for having That's me. All. I'm always happy to come and join you guys either in person or virtually. And I just really appreciate all that you do up there as well. I am going to get to your big event some summer. I'm going to drag my children there <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to enjoy ourselves and get a chance to, to, to meet up with all of you and, um, and just kind of, kind of relish in the joy that I know that uh, Air Venture can be. Well, that's that's a must. So, of mm -hmm. course, you'll you'll let us know when you're coming, and we'll roll of out course. the red carpet, uh, <laughs> or at least put out some fresh boots or something for you. Um, <laughs> well, thank you. So, anyway, and speaking of uh, of thanks, a quick thank you to uh, everyone out there, as always, for listening, uh, and in particular those people that, that uh, give us reviews or send us feedback either via the website at inspiredida.org or emailing us at feedback at ea.org. Um, we might have mentioned this one uh, earlier, but this was a fairly recent one. Uh, great review from Bravo. Julie Juliet on uh, iTunes. We're grateful for that. Uh, just within the past week or so, I've gotten emails from uh, Bob Buckley and uh, Mike Avanger. Um, also, uh, not only with terrific feedback, and uh, but some great suggestions for future episodes as well. So you can bet we're paying attention to those. Um, I also need to call out very, very quickly as we wind up here uh, that uh, our uh, sort of third host, Chris Henry, got a, a wonderful letter uh, from a young lady named Amelia, um, who gives a terrific review. View, uh, and that uh, part of her letter reads, the green dot is the best, that's all caps, podcast ever, and then in parentheses, partly because I don't really listen to others. 
And I don't know how uh, we could ever ask for higher praise than that. So, Amelia, if you're listening to this one, please keep listening. And, uh, and yeah, don't listen to any of the others because, uh, who knows, you might, you might change your mind about us being the best. But for now, uh, we're the best, thanks to Amelia and a whole lot of other people like it, uh, like her, rather. So thank you again to everyone for listening. Thanks again, Jennifer, for your time. And we look forward to catching up with everyone next time when you're cleared to land on The Green Dot. 